This is Salt and Spine. It was really cool because I noticed that my grandfather from Mississippi did fermenting and he did preserving. So it didn't dawn on me that we had things in common through our food ways until much later when it was probably like in culinary school and then even after at the Bernadette. So I had seen these exact same French cooking techniques used at my family's house in Mississippi or the south side of Chicago. And I started to realize how much different cultures had in common through food. It was, it's, it was really like connecting the dots. Hi there, Brian Hogan-Stewart here, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Adrian Cheatham. Now, Adrian is a Chicago native who grew up spending a lot of time in the restaurants her mother managed. She was drawn to the kitchen, and before long, it became a safe space for her to exist. And the kitchen kept pulling her in and back, and after college, Adrian dove back into the back of the house. She enrolled at the Institute of Culinary Education and then landed at Le Bernardin, under Chef Eric Repair. Adrian spent eight years there, working up from a commis to the executive sous chef of the three Michelin star restaurant. She went on to work as the chef de cuisine of the Marcus Samuelson Group, where she helped open new concepts and served as executive chef of the flagship Red Rooster. And of course, through it all were cookbooks. As Adrian tells us, she worked with both Eric Repair and Marcus Samuelson on their books before she landed a deal of her own. And that debut book, titled Sunday best builds on the long-standing family tradition of gathering for a Sunday meal. The roots of the name Sunday best actually run back to the days of segregation, when enslaved black people would wear their Sunday best in order to demand respect from those who didn't accept them as equal. Now today, Adrian, who also came in second on season 15 of Top Chef, hosts virtual Sunday best conversations on her Instagram, an extension of the Sunday best pop-up dinners that she planned pre-pandemic. And now with her first cookbook, Sunday Best, she brings the weekend spirit to everyday cooking with 100 recipes from grilled skirt steak with mustard green chimichurri to green tomato chili to a yuzu banana pudding. Adrian joined us remotely for this week's show. It's a great conversation and we have featured recipes from Sunday Best for our supporters on Substack. So let's head now to our virtual studio where Adrian Cheatham joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Adrian. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Hi, Brian. Thank you for having me. Yes, we are thrilled to have you um, to talk about your work, your life, your career, and of course, your your latest cookbook, your first cookbook, Sunday Best, Cooking Up the Weekend Spirit Every Day. Um, congratulations. It's beautiful. Thank you. I'm so excited. It's my baby. Yes, I know. It takes a lot of time to put a cookbook together. Um, but we always like to start with our guests by sort of at the beginning by hearing about your life and the role food has played in your life and talk a bit about your career and and then, of course, about the book, too. Um, so I know you, you grew up in Chicago. Is that right? Yeah, Chicago I grew area? up in a neighborhood like on the near south side called Hyde Park. It's in the 50s. So the south side uh-huh. typically starts like in the 30s. So, but it goes all the way to the hundreds. So I grew up like midway in the fifties. You write in the book too, that growing up, you had three grandmothers and uh, in particular, I think they had a a influence on you culinarily. Can you talk about the role food and family sort of played in your life as a child? Yeah. I mean, in addition to, you know, it was three women who I viewed as grandmothers, two of them were, um, however, all three of these women were on my father's side of the family. 
My okay. mother's mom actually passed away when I was about five years old. So okay. I have very limited memories of her, unfortunately. Um, but she cooked all the time because she had 12 kids. So I always heard about yeah. how she cooked like two chickens per meal to feed 12 kids plus her and a husband. But growing up, the three women that I saw as grandmothers were all on my father's side. There was his mother, his uh, stepmother, and then his great aunt, who had played a major role in raising him um, in Mississippi, where he grew up. He was born in Chicago, but raised in Mississippi. And my great aunt was a very big part of helping raise him. So she was always more of a grandmother to me. So I kind of, yeah, I called all of them like my grandmother's. And I know your mom also worked in a restaurant, a diner for a while. So you also had a, a little bit of a restaurant influence as a kid. Yeah. Food was always in the personal side, like a family life. Family had every gathering around food, like most families. You know, you mm -hmm. sit down for dinner. And, you know, back then there were no cell phones, but we had to turn the TV off during dinner time. Actually, our parents yeah. used to limit us to like one hour of TV time after we finished our homework. Um, sure. We could do like, we could split it up. We could do 30 minutes here, 30 minutes there, or one hour together. And then we could watch a program with our parents after dinner, um, before bed. But it was dinner time, like no distractions. You talk with your family. You talk about what's happening in school, pop quiz, tests coming up, book reports due, um, drama with friends at school on the playground. And, and then right. in restaurants, because my mom was in that setting too, that was also where family was. My sister and I would walk to the restaurant every day after school if she was working and my dad was still at work at the Oscar Mayer plant. We would walk to her restaurant and sit in the non-smoking section until the dinner rush came in and we had to give up our table. And usually uh -huh. by then my dad was home from work. So we could, you know, he would pick us up from the restaurant and we would all walk home. But yeah, it was just like restaurants were family. Yeah. And you, you write in the book too, that that sort of became a safe space for you um, as a, a teenager too. And that it was a, a very welcoming environment that you found there. Yeah, it was, you know, kids can be really mean. Kids are assholes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. so, uh -huh. And I was really sick as a kid. I have eczema. But back then, uh -huh. they didn't know that if you have any kind of atopic dermatitis and you're exposed to strep throat, that it comes out of your pores and it, it's caustic. It can like eat your skin away. So every uh -huh. year I would get strep because my sister was a swimmer and after I got strep throat, I would wind up in the hospital with my skin being eaten away. And, you know, for a kid to have like, it looked like I had been burned in a fire, like my hands and my legs. So kids would like not want to play with me. They would tease me. And I had a group of friends, but, you know, they still, it's still different for kids. And restaurant, nobody cared. They're just like, yeah, whatever, put a bandage on it and like go mop the bathroom. Thank you. Sure. So restaurants were where nobody cared about my skin problems. Nobody cared that, you know, I, you know, had issues or health problems. Um, they're just like, she's not contagious, so she can do some dishes. Okay, great. Yeah. And I, I know for a while you, you did go to culinary school, but for a while you wanted to go to culinary school and your parents were kind of pushing you away from that. Did that, was that kind of when that 
realization occurred to you? Or when did you decide that food might be an interesting professional choice for you? I think it, it started to, it started to dawn on me in my teenage years, because I did realize that like, wherever else I went, I was really socially awkward. If you have like any type of social anxiety or don't function well around groups of people, or you're not good at making small talk, restaurants are a great place for you to be. Um, It's kind of like a home for misfits. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the weirdos who don't have stuff in common with people around them, like you'll find a home in a kitchen and people that you have so much in common with. And so I love that environment. There was no like, sugarcoating things. There was no small talk. It was like deadline after deadline. So you had to be very direct. And I was great with that environment. Um, But my parents were just kind of like, no. My dad had the response of, I didn't fight for civil rights for you to become a service worker. We finally gotten out of that, you know, being domestics and being waiters and servers as, you know, African-Americans not being able to have many other opportunities And my mother had the response, which I actually understood more was, um, I've seen too many of my friends burn out in the hospitality industry and have nothing to fall back on. So fine, if you want to cook, whatever, but go to regular college first and then go to culinary school after. So you've developed another skill set. You'll become less socially awkward and kind of, you know, figure out yourself as an adult before you go just headfirst into a kitchen. Uh-huh. And you you followed their advice. You went to uh, college, studied, I think, journalism. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I had no choice. I was graduating high okay. school. They said they wouldn't support me if I went to four-year culinary first. Um, uh-huh. So, you know, I got some scholarships and all that. But um, I was like, you know, it's not bad advice. It's actually really not bad advice. I by virtue of working in restaurants for free because of my mother, I heard a lot of people say like, man, I wish I had gone to college, you know? So I was, I was okay with that. And it was also kind of like, okay, great. I get to party for four years and then go to work. Uh, Yeah. I like that take, but the whole time your, your, your sights are still set on culinary school, becoming a chef. Like that was in your mind the whole time. Yeah. It was kind of in the back of my mind. You know, I, okay. I did start to give in to the peer pressure from my parents um, saying, you know, study finance, study something else that you'll make some good money and then cook as a hobby, travel the world and eat at restaurants because you can afford to do it by making a lot of money working as an investment banker or a stockbroker or something um, in financial services. And I was like, okay, maybe... I started in business school, I studied finance, and I absolutely hated it. Uh-huh. Absolutely hated it. I yeah. can do kitchen math, but beyond that, I'm not good at math. Um, I was pretty good at writing, even in elementary and high school. I love grammatical rules and AP style, but I cannot balance an accounting managerial sheet. I failed managerial accounting, as a matter of fact. Okay. <laughs> so... You know, I I was like, I appreciate the perspective on life, mom and dad, um, but I'm not going to live my life chasing money to support my hobbies, which are actually my passions. So Mm -hmm. I decided, um, you know, they already locked in to helping me through college, even though by then I'd gotten a full scholarship. So we were clear on tuition, but living costs, apartment, all that. Um, I had a full-time job, but my parents were 
gracious and kind enough to support my sister and I, who was my roommate in college, um, and help us with rent and light bills. So thanks, mom and dad, for that. Um, That was huge. A lot of people don't get that. And that was huge. So I, um, I still decided like, okay, well, if I'm going to culinary school, what can I tie back in? And maybe when I burn out from 20 years standing on my feet in kitchens, maybe then I'll try my hand at food writing. Um, mm-hmm. Or that'll be my fallback once I'm, you know, no longer physically able to be in a kitchen for a, a full day. You know, as you get older, it does get harder and harder. So I said, okay, maybe I'll, I'll go and transfer to journalism and study that so I can develop a writing skill set that can hopefully tie into food at some point in my career. Yeah. And, and it has now with this book, um, which is, is wonderful to see those, those things coming together. Um, but you, you finish your degree, you go to, then you go to the Institute of Culinary Education, um, in New York city. Um, is this in culinary school or, or pre-culinary school in, in college that you started these soul food Sunday dinners for your friends? Oh, so that was in college. So my sister That's in college. was going, okay. yeah, she was going into her junior year um, when I was a freshman in college and I went to the same college she was at and there was not enough um, campus housing. So instead of trying to find, you know, housing, which was non-existent, um, my sister found an apartment. So the two of us lived together off campus my freshman year. And this was something that she had done with her previous roommates from freshman okay. and sophomore year was um, Soul Food Sundays. And so okay. we were living together at that point. We just renamed it Cheatham Soul Food Sundays and uh-huh. we would cook together. And at first it was like everybody would bring something um, because it's much, it's less expensive. Everybody like you make the mac and cheese, you make the collard greens. Um, this, these two people will pool their money to do the fried fish. Um, uh-huh. but everybody brings one thing. And then later on, um, as my mom was moving up, she had been with Starbucks for a long time on the corporate side. And as she was making more money, she gave my sister and I a Walmart card. And okay. because I got a full scholarship, my sister was in her last year and we both had full-time jobs. My mom was like, okay, as a special treat, you can use the Walmart card once a month to buy some food to help feed your friends because I know what it's like in college um, and we're very fortunate. So we should, you know, do something for other people. So once a month, my sister and I would do the full Cheatham Soul Food Sundays where we did all the food. And, uh-huh. you know, it would still be potlucks once in a while, but we would do everything um, from deviled eggs for desserts, uh, from deviled eggs for appetizers all the way to desserts. And that was so much fun. My sister and I would cook together and make the Kool-Aid and everything. Yes, that's awesome. I love that, that that's a through line for you. Um, so you, you go to the Institute of Culinary Education, you graduate, and and I think your first role out of there is an externship at La Bernadette. Is that right? Yes. So while I was in culinary school, ICE used to have an amazing work-study program. So mm-hmm. I was able, it took me about two years because you work hourly, but I worked off my tuition by working for chefs that visited the school. Um, you're not necessarily helping the curriculum classes, but the school had so many guest chefs that would come to do demos and do a two-day course on a special topic. 
And I was one of the people who would set the chef up for their class, for their demo, work with them, prep their ingredients ahead of time. And if I did well, that chef would say, hey, I have a restaurant. If you're ever looking to learn something, I'm like, well, yeah, I bartend at night, but I'm off this day, this day, and this day. So I would work for free, like staging for about two to three years. I would stage at different restaurants around New York. Um, okay. You know, maybe one month at this restaurant, I got to help Elizabeth Carmel open Hill Country, um, mm-hmm. the first location in New York. And just so many cool things like that. I worked with Ann Burrell a few times, Alex Gernichelli, just all these amazing chefs that later became like food network people and all this. Um, and through those relationships, I got referred to La Bernadette um, cause I was looking for a home for my internship or externship. And I was trying to sure. go back to Chicago to Charlie Trotters, but nobody would call me mm. back. Bummer. One of my favorite restaurants ever. Love amazing. Charlie Trotters. So amazing. Um, so you were you were there for you know eight years and worked your way up and became the executive sous chef. What was that experience like for you to be in a, a kitchen like that? Intense. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, it was yeah. a great environment. Um, I had had some restaurant experience before, but never fine dining. So okay. for your first fine dining restaurant to be La Bernadette. Um, you know, I came in with so much self doubt and so much like, oh my God, I'm not, I'm not good enough to be here. Um, and that, you know, I wish I had had a little more confidence going in because knife skills, everybody's practicing all the time. So who cares if you don't get it exactly perfect on the first try? Um, by the second and third time you do something, it'll get better and faster and more efficient and more precise. Um, So yeah, I just, I lacked that confidence because I was like, I went from like the kiddie pool almost to like jumping into the deep end and, um, it just like, it was so fast paced and I was, luckily I had grown up seeing restaurants, so I was good with it, but like, I definitely needed to work on my knife skills because I had never worked in an environment where it was like that level of precision, um, yeah. But yeah, it was it was such a cool experience. There was always something to learn and I would always get there early, knock out my prep or, you know, have to do my prep again if I messed it up. And sometimes like, sure. you know, check on the person on the station ahead of me to see what they were doing and like what can I help you with from your prep just so I could learn some new stuff. Like, you know, on Garmage, your your mise en place is nothing that has to be cooked. And then the uh-huh. next person is the one who makes the vinaigrettes. And I'm like, okay, let me see the vinaigrettes. And then let me see the cooked vegetables on this station. Let me see the fried mise en place items on this station. And it was just so amazing. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Adrian Cheatham. Don't go anywhere. Hey there, cookbook lover. Are you subscribed to Salt and Spine on Substack? If not, you should be. You'll find our full catalog of podcast episodes featuring more than 100 in-depth interviews with top authors like Nigella Lawson, Jacques Pepin, Samin Nosrat, and Carla Hall. And for just $5 or less per month, you'll also get access to hundreds of exclusive featured recipes from top cookbooks. You'll get early access to our quarterly cookbook club and author dinner parties and so much more. At Salt and Spine, we bring cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. Join 
the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content. Find out more at saltandspine.substack.com. And now back to our conversation with Adrian Cheatham, author of Sunday Best. And you also spent some time then after Labernadon working for Marcus Samuelson. And I think you helped him with the Red Rooster cookbook, t- testing some of the recipes and things. Is that right? Yeah, I did. I actually helped Chef Repair with the Avec Eric cookbook also. Oh, um, you did? Okay. I was wondering yeah. how you sort of, what your foray into cookbooks looked like. So you worked yeah, on both of those. Was, the first one was at Labernadon. Um, Chef okay. Repair had the TV show Avec Eric. And he had just finished the On the Line cookbook, but was rolling into the TV show. And then two years later, the TV show was going to get a cookbook to go with it. And Chef Repair, um, you know, heard that I'd gone to journalism school. And he was like, oh, so so you can write? I was like, I don't know if I can write, but I, I definitely know grammatical rules. And like, I can spell check uh-huh. and I can test recipes and so I got to test and edit the recipes and, um, you know, do some like proofreading on the narrative side of it. Um, and that was amazing. And I got to help with the food for the photo shoots and all that. It was incredible and work on the TV, you know, show as well. And then working for Marcus because he knew I had that experience. Um, that was one of the things he told me was going to be something I would get to help him with when I got hired to work with him. And is that, did you have an interest in, you know, doing a cookbook of your own before that? Is that when you sort of started to get interested in cookbooks? What does, what does that relationship between you and cookbooks look like or cookbook production? That's a good question. I don't know if I ever thought I would do one of my own. I always liked being the person behind the person that you see. I was so happy being operational. Um, It's a safe space. Like, you know, if things go great, that person gets the credit. If things go wrong, they don't really know who you are. So it's okay. Um, <laughs> and I really liked that kind of anonymity of like working hard, doing well, and seeing the fruits of your labor, but not having to, I don't know, not having to experience it yourself. It's like, wow, I get to see what my work has gained. And it's a beautiful thing. But um, but I get to go to bed at 10 o'clock instead of fly to the next place and do this and do this. Sure. Um, it was always like a pipe dream in the back of my head, like, oh, if I did a cookbook, what would it be about? And, you know, I came up in the time of like the chefy coffee table cookbooks that nobody really cooks from, but they look really pretty. So right. I, I was never like, would I do a chefy book? I don't know. And I would write a paragraph here or there for an intro, like if I were ever to write a cookbook. And it always kept coming back to more family background. Um, but it's it still, it was like literally something I never thought I would do. And even when I lost the laptop that I had started taking those notes on, well, it died on oh. me. It was very old. Um, okay. I, uh, I just, I never even gave it a second thought. I was like, well, I guess that's a sign it wasn't meant to be. And then, you know, it, it was meant to be in the end and you were approached to write a book and and went, you know, with Clarkson Potter to produce this book. How did you get to the concept of Sunday Best? Can you talk about that? Did that come, was that, you know, naturally? Was that part of that process of years of sort of throwing notes into a document? Where did that come from? That started to grow and evolve after, probably after Top Chef. I'd already okay. had the idea of the pop-up series kind of fomenting over the the years around 
let's see, I left La Berna Den in 2016. I don't know. It's such a blur. And then okay. COVID really threw off yeah. my timeline. Um, yes. yeah. and I was playing with the idea of the pop-up when I went to work for Marcus. Um, and when I left and then did Top Chef, I was kind of like, well, what do I do now? Do I go back to a restaurant, which was an option? I was kind of like, that's what I know is restaurants. Um, and I said, you know, let me just take a, a little time off because I haven't had any time off to see family or have a life in years. So let me take a little time off. I'll do a pop-up series where I do it once a month or once every three months. And I can have some time, but I can experiment with food and play with things. And that was like the name Sunday Best was just like, I was like, this is it. And then when it came time for the cookbook, uh, my editor at Clarkson Potter was like, you know, we, we love the Sunday Best concept. Um, would you consider using that as the name of your cookbook? And I was like, yeah, I would love to, because then it also keeps it more cohesive and everything that I've been working on and that spirit I was trying to capture with the pop-up series that like showing that we all have so much in common through Sunday traditions and family and food. It was perfect. It was just like a great through line for that. Yeah, you write that, you know, almost every family you know has a Sunday ritual, regardless of culture, religion, all sorts of other factors. Sunday is is really a family day and a day of gathering. Yeah. You also, I know that you um, write a little bit about Eric Repair. Opening, you say he opened your eyes a bit to how you can incorporate other cuisines and ingredients from around the world. And I think we see that with a lot of the recipes in your book and Sunday Best, like your your take on Hop and John, for instance, is really interesting. Um, and can you talk about how you approached that and some of the recipes that you were developing and how you bring those flavors together in a really accessible way? Because I think it really is a book that's super accessible for home cooks. You could have written a very chef book, of course, with your experience and your resume. Um, but how did you approach the recipes? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I want a book that like is splattered with oil and has pages folded over and notes taken on it. Because I want yeah. it to be something that people cook from. My touchstone is like my sister who's married with two kids. And she loves cookbooks, but she loves the cookbooks that she can cook the recipe. It's going to come out great. And there are little hints here and there to make her everyday cooking better. So right. I kind of use that as like my my jumping off point. Um, because it, at the end of the day, like even the chefy books that I bought when I was like a cook working in New York, I never used. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't even cook from them at, at La Berna Den, but I love sure. how growing up, I had such a diverse group of friends, everything from Korean to Puerto Rican, Jewish, black, white, everything. We all kind of grew up together as kids, not realizing, um, you know, if, if the student from Nigeria is bringing his food, you know, people would be like, oh, wow, what is that? But we wouldn't be like, oh, that's gross. Get away. Because we had been to that person's house already and had dinner or lunch with their family and had been introduced to it, or they brought it, they brought their cuisine for a show and tell day. And it was just such a great environment that was very accepting of other people. Even like when my friend who was Korean would bring kimchi, you know, we would try some of her like rolls and things and the kimchi, you know, we would just be like, no, I don't want that. But we never made fun of her for the food that her parents factor. It, it was like, who cares? That's her food. And sure. 
it was really cool because I noticed that my grandfather from Mississippi did fermenting and he did preserving. So it didn't dawn on me that we had things in common through our foodways until much later when it was probably like in culinary school. And then even after at the Bernadette, where there's a sauce that's being made and the chef is saying like, so we start, we're making a bechamel and then we add cheese, which makes it a Mornay. And I'm like, that's exactly how my grandmother makes mac and cheese. Like you start mm-hmm. with a roux, you add milk, you add cheese. So I had seen these exact same French cooking techniques used at my family's house in Mississippi or the South side of Chicago. And I started to realize how much different cultures had in common through food. It was, it's, it was really like connecting the dots and chef repair would travel all the time and he would bring back really cool ingredients and he would bring back techniques from different places. And I remember using like ahi panka or ahi amarillo, like Peruvian pepper ingredients and, you know, mixing them into mashed potatoes and making a foam with it. So we would be doing French cuisine, but the notes of flavor were always respectful of the culture that it came from, but it was so different to me because I never wanted to work in like a classic French restaurant, like doing, you know, the things that you read in textbooks in culinary school. I wanted something more modern and fun and to be able to, for someone who had never traveled really, um, to be able to like get to see a little bit of Peruvian cuisine here or a little bit of Ecuadorian cuisine um, or Senegalese or, you know, just everything. Learn a couple of ingredients really gave me so much like in my arsenal so that when I did start to travel, I was like, oh my God, this is the ingredient that I've seen. This is where it came from. This is the context it's normally used in. And it was really cool to see that Chef Repair was very true to a lot of how it was used, where it came from. Yeah, hearing hearing you talk about all of that, I, there's just such a wealth of knowledge in your head, and there's so much information there. I'm wondering what you learned doing this book. Like, were there things you learned about how you cook? Like, any huge like revelations? Like, what what was the process like for you, and what takeaways did you have? I realized how much of an impact. Um, until you sit down and think about it, like, you know, you take things for granted that have happened in your life and you don't really think about them that much until you're forced to literally sit down and think about them. And I worked with a co-author, a wonderful woman named Sarah Zorn and to tell her these stories and then she could weave them into a cohesive narrative because I'm not good at that. Um, I need like a real writer for that and I'm not. Um, (laughs) so God bless like the real journalists out there. So she um, would take these stories and then she would come back with questions in our next meeting and interviews and talks. And it really forced me to realize how much of an impact um, I took for granted that like everybody is respectful of other cultures and everybody recognizes the humanity and the family aspect that food ways that are shared um, among other cultures, like you don't see people as other. You see them as mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, here's a family out walking at, in the park on Sunday. You don't see them as like, oh, that's somebody who's different from me. You're like, oh, that's a group of family spending time together, just like I do with my family. Um, so I realized how much I had taken for granted the diversity that I grew up with. 
and how much of an impact like the food that we shared together had on me. And it was really beautiful to see that. I'm like, why do I know so much about Jewish cuisine? Or why do I know so much about Korean food? Or why, you know, and I'm like, holy shit, it's because I grew up like, and I would go to Korean school with my friend GA a couple times a month, or I would go to synagogue with Sarah and help her study for her bat mitzvah. And, you know, it's, it was cool to see, you know, just to really have it dawn on me how much I, how blessed I was to like have these amazing other cultures around me that helped shape Mm -hmm. my childhood. Yeah. I love the anecdote about your sister too, because you do intersperse throughout the book, these little sections for how how to Sunday best something, right? Like how to Sunday best your breakfast, how to Sunday best your appetizers. Um, And, you know, I learned from them too, like uh, your suggestion, uh, it's called go a bit nutty to microplane a nut, an almond or a pecan or a peanut over your snacks to create this, you say, edible snowfall. I, I never thought to microplane a nut on something. And so I love those little tidbits. Um, and, and did you know you would include those from the beginning? Or did that happen as, as you were working on the book? I don't think I knew for sure. But some of the recipes that I've done over the years have these little chefy touches that when I'm uh-huh. doing them for friends or family, they're like, we're not doing that shit. Like, come on. But like, that's sure. what Sunday best is like, you don't have to put on a full like dress with hat, but it's like, it can be just a little touch here and there, like a beautiful red lipstick or a cute pair of shoes or a nice belt or a nice blazer over something super casual. It's like, to me, it's about like the little touches that make things special. So when I was going through the recipes with the co-author, you know, I was like, well, this one gets a little too complicated or this one gets a little too chefy you know, and this one can't necessarily be simplified. And she would look at the recipes and she's like, well, maybe we don't use that recipe, but that's a really cool thing that you do in step six or step five. Uh So she really helped me like pull those out. Um, because there were things that like, she would come over and I'm like, "Ah, I don't feel like going out, you know, let's just have some snacks while we talk at my place. And then she would say like, oh, that was what you were talking about in that recipe that we decided not to use. But that's a really cool trick that even if I'm doing something simpler, I can add that little trick to it. I love that. And it's it's such a little wealth of knowledge to have all of those interspersed. Oh, thank you. Um, Thank you, Sarah, for that one. (laughs) Yes, I love that one. I can't wait to, to try it out on a few dishes. We're a show on cookbooks, so I always love to ask our guests like where you get inspiration from. Are there authors or, or cook specific books that have been really meaningful to you in your life or career or that you know were useful for you as you were writing this book in particular? There are a lot. I mean, Edna Lewis's books are always super inspirational because they can it can just be about something beautiful and simple. And it reminds mm-hmm. you that you don't have to do something super chefy to make it special. You can do something like the the parachute that I have in there, like for breakfast. Like that was something that my mom yeah. would do for us as kids. And then when I could finally reach the toaster oven, I could make for myself. And it was such a a moment of like elation for me as a child to put a piece of like freaking craft singles on a piece right. of nice sourdough and pop it under the broiler and watch it get this beautiful bubble. And then you get the melting cheese on the bread underneath. Like it can be something simple that just has something so satisfying to it. Um, and then Marcus's books, like the Red Rooster mm-hmm. Cookbook was like a lifestyle book 
it really yeah. showed like the beauty of a neighborhood and, you know, a similar thing about all the diverse cultures that are there. Um, so that was also super inspirational. And, and, you know, something like the French Laundry Cookbook, which even though it looks super fancy, it breaks down the how and the why of certain things, which for me as a young cook was like, wow, the importance of big pot blanching or things like that it was just like, whoa, that's why it works so well. All of those, I think, are, are great recommendations and really meaningful books. Um, well, we always end with a little game. So I thought we would play the Cheatham Sunday Best Dinner Party. Um, you're you're no stranger, I know, to, to um, culinary game shows as a former Top <laughs> Chef contestant yourself. So um, we have these cards here. You can sort of think of it like like Chopped, the TV show Chopped. We'll draw from each pile, and that'll be what you'll have to work with to put together... Okay the best Sunday best dinner party we can think of. How does that sound? Amazing. I love it. I'm in. All right. Okay. So we'll start with, let's start with a protein and I'm going to draw from the middle here. Um, we have lamb as the okay. protein we're working with. Mm -hmm. uh, the vegetable we're working with today, you have sweet potatoes. All right. On your cart, on like your basket. So far, so good. Uh, wait till we get to the secret ingredient. Might throw us for a, a, a little spin. Um, flavor that we're working with, thyme. So we've got oh, to incorporate okay. thyme. And then our secret ingredient stack. So the secret ingredient is passion fruit. Oh, okay. That's so lamb. Yeah, lamb, sweet potato, thyme, passion fruit. Now, it doesn't have to be all one dish either since we're doing oh. a dinner party. That gives you a little more flexibility than than we give some of our guests. So, uh, lamb, sweet potatoes, thyme, and passion fruit. What 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 might we make for a perfect Sunday best dinner party? Okay, well, I mean, this is going to sound super basic, so I apologize. It's gonna no it's gonna no worries. Sweet potatoes for the appetizer, lamb entree, passion fruit for the dessert. I mean, I could do something like try to do something super cool and use it for one of the other courses, but why? You know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Stick to what works. Their, right. The aces in their places, as it were. Yes. Um, so for appetizer, I would do a sweet potato gnocchi with okay. the one that's in the cookbook with the bacon miso sauce, because that is one of oh. my favorite things to eat. I just I love that. It's like sweet and savory and salty and umami. Um, yeah. So that would be a sweet potato dish for the lamb. I would do a rack of lamb where you mm -hmm. sear it, you slather, um, just like I do the, the pecan uh, crusted pork roast in the book. You sear it in okay. a pan first, you rub it with like Dijon mustard, and then you roll it in a crust of like panko breadcrumbs and crushed pistachios. And then you roast mm. that in the oven. So you get this beautifully crusted rack of lamb you know, slice it into like two bone sections for each guest. Um, probably sure. with like some grilled eggplant or something simple there. Nice little pomegranate jus or something. Um, okay. Mm -hmm. And for the dessert, which is perfect because I love fruit desserts. Chocolate, fine. Okay. okay. My husband yeah. is a chocolate fan, but I am a fruit dessert person all the way. Same here. I'm all fruit. Yes. I love it. It's crazy. There are two camps. It's your either chocolate or your fruit. Yeah. I'm uh -huh. fruit. I'm fruit. And they tend to marry each other, right? Because my wife is also purely chocolate. And ah. I'm like, I want the fruit. Yep. So, yes. <laughs> yes. So I would do for that, 
probably like a shortbread crust, like individual tarts filled okay. with like some kind of custard, like a citrusy custard, like a lemon curd, but a little creamier. So maybe a little extra butter in it at the end. Um, okay. And then just simply top it with like some beautiful tart passion fruit seeds, not do too much to the passion fruit itself. Just like let them provide the tartness to the rich lemon curd, maybe a little sprinkle of sugar over the top of it just to dull the tartness a tiny bit, but not too much at all. I love, I like that tart acidity they bring. So yeah, I think that would be my, my meal. I love that. I think that all, that all sounds delicious. It sounds like a perfect dinner party. Yay. So thank you so much for playing along. And it was so great to talk with you, Adrian. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you so much for having me, Brian. I love your podcast and I'm happy to be here with you. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our Substack. There you'll find two featured recipes from Adrian Cheatham's Sunday Best. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on iTunes. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District, and the Civic Kitchen is now offering both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find a list of all their classes at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia at Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.